Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. Amy Costello is a veteran reporter who now hosts the excellent Tiny Spark podcast that investigates what goes right and what goes wrong in philanthropy, including global philanthropy and the NGO sector. At the very end of our conversation, Amy reveals that she started this podcast in part as a response to a story she reported that was wildly popular, but she later learned rested on a false premise. Amy was one of the first television reporters in Darfur during the midst of the genocide, a work for which she was Emmy-nominated, and she describes the kinds of scenes she saw and how that reporting project left a lasting impression upon her. We kick off in this holiday season discussing philanthropy and how individuals, perhaps you out there listening right now, can be an effective altruist by maximizing the impact of your charitable giving. Now, of course, this podcast is not a charity. It's a service, and it's a service I provide to you twice a week, each week. And if you value this service, and if you can afford it, I would so appreciate your support. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the support the show link to make a contribution and earn rewards and earn my undying love and respect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And now here is Amy Costello. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I think this is something that we all wrestle with, especially this time of year. And I think one important thing to be mindful of is that the largest players in this space, the most recognizable international NGOs that any of your listeners may be familiar with, are likely getting the lion's share of donor dollars. And this is partly because they tend to have big marketing teams um, and big budgets that enable them to reach your listeners uh, wherever they may be and to appeal, appeal to them for donations. What that means is that the vast majority of smaller international organizations working on any issue that a donor might be interested in is likely not getting much funding at all. The vast majority of dollars flowing through the nonprofit sector at any given time go to a very small percentage of the nation's nonprofits. So that's just something to be aware of. And so while we may be inclined to just automatically give to an organization that we've heard of and that we know very well, it doesn't necessarily mean that that organization is having the most impact on the ground with the populations that we want to reach. So one thing to think about is to look for smaller organizations that are having you know, at least seemingly good impact in an area that you're interested in supporting. And a good way to figure that out is to 
see how closely this international organization, whether it be an American organization or a British one, European, are they working closely and in partnership with the populations that they're trying to help? Um, are they providing services that the population has asked for? Well, how does like a casual observer um, or would-be donor figure that out? It seems like a lot of work for any individual to do. Well, I mean, I think one thing is you just go to their website and look at their staff. Are they all based in London or New York? Or are senior staff based in the country that you're interested in helping? Are many of the staff uh, local people? Um, I think that's a sign of a healthy organization that is based in true partnership uh, with people on the ground. Um, I don't know that an organization filled with people based halfway around the world um, is necessarily effectively serving local populations. And so I just think of a sign of health for an organization is when you get on their website and look at their senior staff, that um, it is populated with people from the community that they're helping. I think that would be a very good sign. That's fascinating. Um, I had not actually ever thought of, of that. How much of, of like a red flag is this idea of, of overhead expenses? Um, I'm one who tends to dismiss large overhead expenses um, as not being necessarily the best arbiter of whether or not an organization does a does a good job. Like, what's your take on that question? Yeah, I mean, I would tend to agree with you. I think that you know the so-called overhead myth um, is problematic. I think that um, for an organization to do good work, um, especially in regions of the world that are difficult to access and work in for a variety of different reasons, they're going to need overhead. Um, they're going to need, you know, vehicles to get around with, and um, they're going to need uh, people who are good at what they do. And sometimes that means paying top executives um, reasonable salaries so that they can be competitive with the private market. Um, you know, but again, if there's plenty of organizations that high, have high overhead that aren't doing anything good. And, and, you know, that's a problem, of course. But I certainly think it would be a mistake to judge a nonprofit solely based on its overhead or even primarily based on its overhead. There's many other important factors that an effective organization needs. Um, are there any international causes that you think are generally overlooked? I mean, you know, the, the big issues for a long time were, you know, the big three diseases, HIV, AIDS, malaria. Um, are there other sort of under the radar issues or, or causes that you think um, probably deserve more attention? And if they got more attention could probably sort of maximize the amount of, of good that, that could be done to those ends. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to look at the HIV AIDS response over the last decade or so. I mean, it's in, in many ways been incredibly successful. Um, you know, the rates of um, HIV transmission, you know, going down so much and people living much longer lives thanks to <clears throat> thanks to antiretrovirals. But, um, you know, on our program, we recently um, interviewed um, an author, Jeremy Smith, who wrote uh, a very um, interesting book about, you know, what people are dying from now. And it tends to be not HIV AIDS. Um, it tends to be heart disease. Mm -hmm. It tends to be road accidents. Um, people suffering from chronic pain, which then makes it difficult for them to do their work so they can't make a living anymore. Mm -hmm. And they tend to be the things that we're all dying of, <laughs> which is interesting. Um, yeah, in UN think, speak, we call this non-communicable diseases. It's the uh, the next frontier of, of global health where you have these rapidly um, developing poor countries suddenly 
you know, adopting the pathologies of middle income countries, which include like diabetes and overweight and heart disease, things like that, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, you know, what I discussed with Jeremy was, well, how do you raise funds for, you know, overweight people in Nigeria? It's not, it's, it's a hard cause to raise money for, frankly. And I think that's going to be the challenge and something that'll be interesting to observe in the year ahead. Mm -hmm. In the year ahead is like, how are organizations working on diabetes and road accidents across developing nations going to pull at the heartstrings of donors like us um, to get people to write checks for those causes? It's, I, I would argue that it's much more difficult to raise money for those causes than it is for a very, you know, a dying child um, suffering from malnutrition or HIV uh, somewhere in the world. So that'll be an interesting thing to look at. Now, do you have any sort of favorite, favorite charities that you ever like to plug or do you kind of stay above the fray? Cause you're, you're reporting on these issues. Yeah, I don't, um, really endorse, uh, certain organizations over the other, but as I said earlier, I am a big fan of people giving both locally and globally, uh, that I think that there's room for both. Even if you're giving just a small amount every year, I think um, to look at the immediate needs in your own community um, is a place where you can have high impact, um, as well as giving to a highly effective organization overseas doing good work there. Um, so I would love to pivot now and, and talk about you and your career and we'll, we'll get to the tiny spark podcast at the end, which is your fantastic podcast that I, I love the tagline that sort of investigates the, the business of, of doing good. And I must say of all the guests I've ever interviewed, your line is the clearest. I can tell that you're using like a great mic. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> what, what mic do you use? Um, geez. That's a good question. Um, I want to say it's like an, I think it's called an RE50 or something, yeah. but it's kind of the one that traditional NPR reporters use. It's kind of a field microphone. Oh, nice. Um, yes. Yeah. I can tell it's fancier than my my own. The, no. the, the Yeti. Oh, it's good. No, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased. Usually at, this is the point of the interview where I fret about audio quality, but I'm, I'm smooth sailing. Oh, good. good. <laughs> um, well, you're so, sounding great too. <laughs> so where, where are you from? Uh, <laughs> I wish that was a simple question. Um, I moved around a lot growing up. So I, you know, the longest I lived in a place growing up was about four years. I went to three high schools in three different countries in about nine months. Um, that was in Hong Kong and Japan when I was a teenager. I was born in Chicago. I mostly consider myself an East Coaster. I consider Connecticut home because oh, yeah. that's where I graduated from high school. Where'd you go to high school? I, I also graduated from high school in Connecticut. What town? Oh, I um, it was a very small town called Washington and Litchfield oh, yeah. County. I, I know Washington well. Great apple farms in Washington. Yes, I was about, there are. I grew up about twenty miles south in, in Brookfield. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. down okay. Route Twenty Five. Yeah, we're, we're yeah. From the, yeah, we're from the same hood. Like, what did your parents do that you were shepherded around the world at such a young age? Well, my father worked for a large corporation, so he would just get transferred a lot. So that was kind of the the mm -hmm. reason. Do you have a brothers or sisters? Yes, I'm the youngest of six. Oh, so wow. I did survive having three older brothers and two older sisters. That is amazing. Now, I, you know, I have to imagine sort of growing up internationally, you, you said you, you uh, were mostly in, in Asia. Um, <laughs> that, that was probably obviously like a very early exposure to, to the world. Was your family sort of politically engaged? Um, no, I wouldn't say so, but I would... I would call my parents kind of adventurers in a way. I mean, even though my dad was kind of, you know, had a traditional job working for a corporation, I would say they really both embrace change and like, you know, having moved so much, you know, they had to in a way. But like, I remember, 
going to, to Hong Kong from this rural town in Connecticut in seventh grade. And my parents really just kind of, you know, diving right in and being really excited about it and kind of, I think, showing me that change and new cultures and not knowing where you are and not speaking the language can be a really exciting thing and experience to welcome rather than something to fear. And uh, where did you go to, to school? Did you end up going to school in the United States to college? Oh, to college. Yeah. I went to Trinity college in Washington, DC, uh, an all women's college. Mm -hmm. What, what that was, what made you choose an all women's college? Um, my sister had gone there and, um, so I was familiar with it and I wanted to go to college in a big city, but, um, I kind of say going to a women's college in a, in a big city is kind of the best of both worlds because you have, you know, you can go and meet men whenever you want, but when you get back to classroom and to the dorm, you're just surrounded by your friends. And so I really thought, and it was also just a way I was interested in kind of, you know, when you go to women's college, women have to become class president. They have to take on leadership positions. They have to raise their hands in class. So for me, I'm like a huge fan. And I think it was a great way to build kind of my own, you know, sense of self and leadership abilities as well. Uh, and what did you study? History. And I, I, so did you ever sort of interact with sort of being in Washington and, and sort of what that sort of enables you as, as a student? So were you like active in, in public policy issues at the time? Um, you know, I was involved with student government on campus. And then um, I did have a summer internship um, with the National Security Archive, um, which is a place where they do a lot of kind of yeah, I would say public policy research. And I, I kind of worked as a researcher there with um, actually and one of my fellow interns with was Samantha Power, um, who is now what the U U.S. is um, representative to the U.N. Um, so that was kind of interesting. But, yeah, I mean, I was involved in, um, you know, mostly. Yeah, I mean, I had some internships, but I wouldn't say I was I was particularly mm -hmm. involved in public policy. So that's funny. So you and, and Samantha Power there, what, in, in like the early 1990s, mid 1990s? <laughs> You're trying to, uh, I'm trying to get stories uh, get my here. age yeah. now. Yeah, no, I, well, I would have graduated uh, mm -hmm. in 92. So this probably would have been in 90 or something like that. Um, what was she like as an intern, as a fellow intern? Do you keep in touch? Oh, gosh. Uh, no, we do not keep in touch. <laughs> I'd be shocked if she even um, remembered me. So, um, you know, I don't know. I just remember her as being very kind and incredibly smart. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but, you know, but never, um, but very modest about all of that, which mm -hmm. seems to come through still to this day. So how did you get the, the journalism bug? Um, I think it was, I got married right out of college um, to a South African and we um, decided to travel cross country um, across Africa, basically from Cairo to Cape Town by public transportation. And it was, you know, I was in my early 20s and it was during that time that I realized like, wow, it's, you know, I love to travel and wouldn't it be cool if I could get paid to travel? And so I wrote like a few travel articles, um, you know, submitted them unsuccessfully to my local newspaper back in Connecticut thinking they'd be interested and they weren't. But I finally did get a couple things published and I just thought, you know. I'd love to be able to keep doing this. And so um, my husband went to the Rhode Island School of Design. Um, and in his fourth year there, I applied to Columbia Journalism School and okay. lo and behold, got in and then kind of it, it took it from there. Um, well, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would love to stop you and learn more about this trip from uh, Cairo to Cape Town. 
Mm-hmm. Um, is this like a well-trod road? I mean, that, that people would do that, that there's sort of like a, you know, I don't know if the time websites, but they're like, you know, people would sort of, do you have to sort of improvise uh, along the way about how you take your next bus to the next point South? Yes. Um, you know, it was kind of, I don't know if it was pre-internet, but I mean, I remember very distinctly going and buying one of those big um, travel, you know, the Let's Go Africa travel guide that looked more like a Bible. And like before our trip, peeling out, literally tearing out the countries that we weren't going to go to so that the book could become thinner. Um, And we did fly... over some parts of Africa, uh, we, you know, we, we started in Egypt, um, and then bypassed a couple of countries and then kind of went from Kenya on down and over to Mauritius and things like that. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was a lot of just kind of our own, you know, research and guidebooks, but then, you know, going to the youth hostels and people back then, um, would just leave handwritten notes in in big books that were left at the hostels and they would say, Oh, go to this place. It's great. Or don't go here. It's terrible. Um, and just, you know, obviously as, as any of your listeners know, have done a fair amount of travel, you're constantly meeting people, uh, other backpackers. And so we got a lot of good information from them. Um, and so you opted then to go though to to Columbia Journalism School. Did you find that helpful? I mean, uh, it's um, th- there's like a debate in in journalism whether or not journalism school is sort of worth it. Did did you find it to be a, a useful platform? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely did. I mean, I think I you know I didn't go there right out of undergrad, and I'm and I'm glad for that. I think I was about 27 when I went, and it had some you know life experiences and work experience as well. Um, and I just got a tremendous amount out of it, yes, both from my professors and then, you know, my fellow students, most importantly, who have become really respected colleagues now. Um, and so for me, one of the most valuable things I got out of journalism school was the network mm-hmm. um, that, um, you know, professors could introduce me to potential job opportunities. And then, you know, just the classmates that I've kept in touch with um, continue to be um, resources for me professionally. So I feel quite certain I would have never gotten to where I am today had I not gone to journalism. But I understand and appreciate that that is certainly not everyone's experience. And given the high cost, um, especially these days, you really have to do the financial calculation as to whether it is in fact worth it. Um, so what did you what kind of jobs opened up to you after you went to uh, journalism school? Well, I graduated from journalism school in ninety eight and that was the first year that NPR came to Columbia's job fair. And so I was like literally first in line, like you had to sign up for each thing. and I was like first on the list and was basically just desperate to get in there. And, um, you know, there was a few other people she interviewed too, and they had a couple of very entry level job openings on morning edition, which would involve like overnight shifts and things like that. And, you know, I didn't hear from the woman afterwards and I just like wrote her like thank you notes, handwritten, like kept hounding her until they, you know, finally relented and let me come in. And the irony there was I had learned how to produce digitally and edit audio um, on a computer at Columbia. And back then NPR was still using reel to reel. So you were like cutting with, you know, razor blades. Wow. Um, so I actually, before I went for the interview, my professor had to teach me how to cut tape literally. <laughs> so that was interesting. Um, but they were in the process of transitioning to digital. So I think my digital experience editing audio probably served uh, me well. So at what point after you uh, landed in NPR were you sort of working on stories on your on your own? 
Well, I mean, I started working on them while I was in the building. Um, I did a couple of stories that got broadcast, but, you know, it was difficult to find time, uh, you know, during the job to do that. Um, so it, I actually stayed there for three years as a producer on Morning Edition and then took a leave of absence because my husband wanted to go back to South Africa for a time. And so I went with him and we stayed for three months and then I decided to just resign and start freelancing. Um, but, you know, that's why it was so good that I had had that production experiences at, at NPR because I saw how the best reporters were putting together their stories. You know, I was cutting them and mixing them and looking very closely at their scripts and how they wrote and what kind of tape they used. And so all of that was great um, training ground for me, as I set out as a freelance reporter three years later. Um, and, you know, I remember I pitched a story and I told Marketplace that I was going to be available uh, to do a story. They sent me an assignment. I turned it around pretty quickly. And, you know, the next day they called me and they said, do you want to go to Zimbabwe? I said yes. And that, at that time, um, many uh, white farmers' farms were being overtaken by, um, you know, the government. Um, and mm -hmm. so there were these violent farm seizures that were going on. So I kind of went in a little bit undercover, actually, because they weren't really letting journalists in at the time and did a series of reports about those farm seizures. And I was on my way Um you know, kind of working as a correspondent around the continent. So I felt very fortunate. I mean, did you find that there was an interest in stories uh, about Africa from, you know, big media corporations or not big corporate, but, you know, big, big media outlets like NPR, like Marketplace and, and other kind of audio radio outlets? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there was. And, um, you know, I always saw it as my obligation to make them interesting to listeners, like, you know, because I figured if, somebody's going to turn the dial as soon as they hear the beginning of my story, then, you know, why am I doing this job? And I cared very much about the people I was covering and the topics that I was covering. And so I tried very hard uh, in the first minute or two of my story to draw the listener in, um, you know, whether I was successful at that, you know, <laughs> you'll have to ask the listeners, but um you know, yes, I think that um, there was a lot of interest in the stories that I was doing, and I hope that I helped to make them compelling through through the storytelling. What were some of the um, other stories that from that time that, that sort of resonate with you that, that you were working on? Well, I remember going two miles underground uh, to do a story about HIV-positive mine workers in South Africa. Um, and that was just an incredible story because then HIV-AIDS was really – uh, taking a tremendous toll on so many people in South Africa and surrounding countries. And this backbreaking, incredibly hard physical labor that they were doing two miles underground to extract mineral resources. Um, and then, you know, I found that they were basically, when they got too sick to go underground, they were put in a van, shuttled back to their rural village from where they came and left to die, essentially with the mining companies essentially wipe, you know, washing their hands of any commitments to care for these people. Um, and so like that stays with me. Um, you know, and then I did a fair number of stories about child laborers across Africa and the complexity around, um, children who work and what, why they work and whether they should be working. Um, but I also did some, you know, positive stories as well. Um, business people doing, um, innovative things, um, 
people, you know, a home health care worker who, you know, visits um, the sick on her own and gives them amazing care under very limited resources. Um, so, you know, it really ran the gamut. Um, but it was uh, a very profound um, and moving experience for well, me. Well, on, on the child labor issue, I mean, how how did you go about reporting uh, some of those stories? I mean, it, it seems it's, it's sort of like both like an emotionally fraught, but also, as you said, like a very complex kind of of story to report like where where were you reporting on child labor issues well like for instance i did it in ivory coast um and you know what i would tend to do as a reporter is i was almost always traveling alone i was almost always doing enterprise reporting so that means i wasn't like chasing the news and and running around with a bunch of other western journalists um while news broke in one country or another i was generally doing these kind of more feature stories and so i would be inherently alone and one thing i learned the importance of very early on was getting an excellent translator um a lot of times uh we can rely on people who have some grasp of english and some grasp of the local language but uh so much is missed in translation all of the nuance and all of the real meaning of what people are saying. And so, you know, I would find an excellent translator. And then oftentimes, like with child laborers, I would just kind of, you know, sometimes I'd talk to organizations that worked with them and people in on the in the country who knew a lot about child labor in their own countries. But then I would just go out on the street. <laughs> and, and as anybody knows who's been to these regions, the ch- children are all over the place working and they're not hard to find. And I would inevitably just go up with my translator and, and talk to them. And sometimes they're mothers or fathers and you know, follow them around and try to just get a sense of of what this work is like, um, why people employ child laborers, um, what kind of needs their families are addressing and those kinds of things. So it's not, you know, certainly not brain surgery. It's really just a matter of going up and and asking people about their lives. Does does like the moral complexity of of a situation like like the the child laborers that you you spoke with you interviewed go sort of beyond the dilemma of if this child is in school where she should be, uh, then uh, she wouldn't be out earning income for her family so her family can eat? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it also goes to social norms and, and, and trying to be very cognizant of the biases and opinions that I bring to my own reporting, having grown up, you know, mostly in a Western developing nation with lots of um, affluence and, and, you know, opportunities all around me. Um, sometimes I may assume that everybody wants education for their children and for themselves. And everybody inherently understands why that's important. I'm not necessarily convinced that education, you know, holds the same, um, weight, uh, with families whose children are laboring. I think there's plenty of families where that would be an ideal and they would love to send their kids to school for 12 years. You know, the other thing is the schools are often terrible. The teachers are overworked. The class sizes are huge. There's no resources, not even chairs or pencils or paper or textbooks. And so, you know, it's so multifaceted. We could talk about any part, you know, and sometimes it's dangerous to get to school or it's too far away or there's no clean drinking water when you get there. There's no sanitary um, supplies for teenage girls. I mean, we could go on and on about all the obstacles around children obtaining an education. And then when they do finish, are there jobs for them? I mean, so I, I think it's, it is very complex. It goes well beyond, you know, what the questions you've just raised. And um, I think that's why it's so difficult to tackle. 
Um, so how long were you in, in Africa reporting at, at this time? About five years, more or less. And then what brought you back stateside? Um, frankly, um, I had a child um, in South Africa, and she was about a year and a half old, and there were a number of things that happened in our lives with respect to crime that made us feel increasingly unsafe there. And some of it was violent crime right around us. Um, and so as any parent might appreciate, um, once you have a child, you know, I used to be somebody who had a very high tolerance for insecurity. Um, and I found that my threshold for it became much mm -hmm. lower once I had a baby. So um, that's really why we moved at the time. Yeah, no, I actually have the, the same experience as well. I have zero threshold for that sort of thing now that I have a couple of kids. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. No, I, no, I, I definitely, definitely feel you. I have like no desire to, to you know, report from a conflict zone or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, everything uh, changes. Everything, doesn't it? Yeah, everything yeah. changes. Um, so, I, at what point then did you sort of start getting clued into the the Darfur story? Uh, because I know that was a big one for you. You were Emmy Emmy nominated uh, as as well. What were your roots um, of of interacting with with that story? Well, you know, I was living in South Africa at the time and getting reports, you know, kind of similar, maybe in some ways to what we're hearing out of Aleppo. You know, I mean, there were just these reports coming out of people fleeing um, Darfur and into neighboring Chad. Um, and the Sudanese government at the time was not allowing any journalists to go into Darfur to report on the crisis. And so um, I decided um, and PRIs, the world who I was working for at the time, um, sent me to Chad uh, so that I could interview the refugees who were flowing over the border um, and hear their stories about what their experience was in Darfur. And that was just um, probably one of the most difficult and depressing um, reporting visits I've ever made. People living um, literally in the middle of the desert with no uh, form of refuge, no tents to speak of. Um, there was no water really. Um, it was just dire. And I thought if these people are willing to stay in this environment, imagine what it must've been like in Darfur. And so, um, that helped to inform my understanding of what was going on. And then finally, you, should, um, I, should I say for, from that trip and in, in, in interviewing those refugees over the border, were there any sort of particular stories or moments that, um, were particularly resonant or crystallized to you, the extent to which, um, tragedy was, was unfolding over the border? Well, as I recall, um, many of the refugees were women and children, um, which was very concerning in a way because that meant that the men had either gone off to fight or had been killed. Uh, you know, young um, teenage boys um, and men were seen as potential enemies, um, uh, a threat. So, um, you know, their absence in Chad was kind of harrowing. And just the conditions under which some of the youngest children were um, existing, many of them malnourished, incredibly sick, um, overworked hospitals. I mean, the fact that the UN could not even cope with the influx of um, refugees coming over the border. And as I said, there were many people who were in UN tents. Um, the UN High Commission for Refugees was responsible for them. But there were many, many others that were still not even being reached and served and literally were in the middle of the desert with a small piece of fabric kind of billowing over their heads as shelter. Um, so... 
you know, that, um, that was quite, um, something, but I'm sorry, I can't remember what was the original question you asked. Oh, if there were any particular stories that you remember of, of the refugees that, that describe their experiences. Yeah. I mean, I do remember very vividly an elderly man who, um, just had these beautiful eyes. He looked so you kind of this white, closely cropped hair. He looked just very regal to me. And yet he was laying on his side under one of these, you know, subpar structures, um, unable to really move and desperate for help. And yet there was nobody there helping him. And to me, that really illustrated um, how, how, you know, strapped organizations like UNHCR are in these kinds of environments. And I think we like to think, oh, the UN is there, everyone is being helped at least. But I think, you know, and I don't have any, um, you know, big data to back this, but it's more an impressionistic thing, having been in some of these emergency situations, is that they are often overwhelmed and understaffed mm-hmm. and under-resourced. No, and I, I, I have the data. It's, it's okay. basically, you know, <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, that? it's basically, it's basically any, in any given sort of humanitarian emergency, um, they're always at least um, 50% underfunded total. Like today in, in the world, we're about 50% uh, funded to what uh, the requirements are to care for everyone who needs care anywhere. Um, and, you know, in, in an emergency like uh, the Darfur emergency and what was this like 2004, Probably that was kind of yes. off the radar. The more off the radar you are, the less politically relevant you are to the major donors, the less funding you'll get. And so I have to imagine that at this point, at least Darfur is far from the radar, although not too far after that, the European Union uh, deployed like a, a small peacekeeping force in that region where you're at on the Chad-Sudan border to help protect the refugees that had flown over into Chad. So it might have improved slightly after that, but at the point you're discussing, I mean, it was it was the, the depths of, of despair, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It certainly was. Um. And so, I mean, at the time, I mean, this was, was this was what, 2004, 2005 about? Um, well, I ended up going into Darfur in 2004. Okay. How did you enter Darfur? Did you sneak over the border? No. So um, we were able to go because um, the Sudanese government had lifted the ban on journalists um, and were allowing them in. And so we almost immediately applied and I contacted the PBS television program Frontline world and told them um, of my interest in going and sent them a pitch. And they sent to me um, a fabulous uh, producer and camera woman, Cassandra Herman, uh, who had done a number of stories for Frontline from Africa. And so she flew in from California. We then um, flew into um, Khartoum, the capital, where we had to wait for several days to get a journalism visa to go to Darfur. And so we did a couple of interviews, but it was really just a waiting game. And finally, we um, were able to get on a small flight that went into Darfur. Um, And just to give you an idea of how unstable it was at the time, we landed and we got to like a UN base where we got this kind of security briefing from somebody there. And I'll never forget, he pulls down a map of Darfur and the entire map is covered in red except for this little tiny dot of white where we were which was considered some kind of safe zone and basically everything else was a no-go zone for workers and certainly for journalists so he's basically said if you're going to go out of you know this little town we're in you're kind of on your own um but we did go out 
on our own anyway, um, because we knew that that's where the story was. Inevitably, when you're covering conflicts and crises, uh, the people who are worst off are the people who are at the end of long dirt roads that are insecure and unsafe um, and where no kind of resources are getting to. So we did, you know, kind of go out and and explore what was going on on the ground there. And, and what did you find? What did you see? Like, what were some of the some of the, the stories that you collected? Um, you know, we met. Um, you know, we, as I said, kind of like I did with the child laborers, where I would basically just kind of arrive in town and with a translator and and find just people on the street to talk to. I'm not a big fan of when you want to find out what's going on to like have these prearranged interviews and find these so-called experts. You need to just get out on the ground and, and start talking to people. And so as we traveled, you know, there was a lot of security checkpoints. Some of them were rebel held. Some of them were government held. So it was a matter of going through all these different checkpoints at various times. Um, but, you know, we met, uh, we went through one town that looked incredibly quiet. And of course, at the time, you know, Darfur was known that, you know, the John Jaweed and government militias were coming in and, and just kind of burning villages down and chasing people out. And so we saw in a village that looked like this, it was incredibly quiet. And there was just this young man there just kind of standing there seemingly alone. And so I just said, stop the car. And we got out and interviewed this man. And I think um, part of our interview with him is is in the actual frontline piece that people can see. Um, you know, and he described what had happened in his village. That there used to be, you know, quite a few people in this town and they were all gone now. And some of them were hiding in the in the hills. Um, and then we went and found people who were hiding in the hills. And, you know, it just, um, it was quite desperate. We talked to, you know, I spent a fair amount of time um, with rebel soldiers and hearing their story and hearing why they were taking up arms against their government. Um, so it was really like most reporting trips for me, just kind of a serendipitous journey through an area talking to various people, you know, along the way. I mean, so, so, here you are reporting, you know, from the location of, of a genocide in the midst of, of a genocide, interviewing people who've been affected by it. But how, like, how are you sort of personally or, or emotionally like processing what people are, are telling you about, you know, the destruction and, and the death that they're sort of experiencing, that they're, they're witnessing? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because this is one of the first television pieces I had ever done. Um, I was accustomed to doing radio where people can't see me and, and my response to what people are saying. And I had this camera kind of <laughs> in my face sometime, you know, as I was interviewing people. And I guess I remember making the decision very early on that I wasn't going to hide my own feelings about what people were telling me, that it was shocking. It was incredibly upsetting and depressing. And I think, you know, you can see that on my face sometimes, and I'm okay with that. In fact, I think um, to pretend that these kinds of stories and experiences don't impact a reporter um, is is silly. And, and, you know, and I always, you know, I think my, the toll that the reporting took over a period of five years on all the many crises I covered in one form or another certainly did take a toll on me emotionally. Um, I had to learn how to draw boundaries between the stories that people were telling me and my, and myself. Um, and so it wasn't easy. And, you know, I still think, um, you know, as I've told some of my friends from time to time, I think perhaps I saw too much during that time. And those memories stay very much with me to this day. So um, it's not something I've even necessarily, you know, gotten over completely, you know, all these years later. 
Um, so in in the years after you you produced this this Emmy nominated piece and and uh, the podcast that you started, what sort of projects had you undertaken? Um, I'm sorry. Can you just say that question again? Sure, sure, sure. So um, in the years since um, you produced the the Emmy nominated uh, piece on on Darfur and in the um, years before you started the podcast, what other projects had you? Had you undertaken? Well, um, so when I got back from Darfur, I was still based in South Africa. Um, and then I, I soon became pregnant um, with my daughter, my first child. So, um, you know, it was kind of, I guess, I don't know, ironic in a way that um, that ended up being my last significant piece from um, kind of a precarious um, environment uh, because I became pregnant, which meant I couldn't even really travel um, to, you know, regions, for instance, with malaria, even if they were, you know, otherwise safe, I couldn't really go there. Um, and so I did do some more stories from um, South Africa. And then I, you know, as I said, when my daughter was about a year and a half old, we moved um, to New York. Um, and I would uh, love to, to learn a little more about the, the genesis of your podcast. We started off uh, discussing it, um, but how did you sort of get the idea and, and, and even like the resources to put this thing together? It's a great one, by the way, and I'll, oh. I'll post a link to it. Thank you. Um, so it was really when I got back to New York, um, having a young child, trying to figure out, you know, what kind of work I could and wanted to do at that point in my life. And it was also um, reflecting on my experiences that I had had in Africa. And one of them in particular, the other story that I did for Frontline World Television uh, was a story about the play pump, which was this child-powered merry-go-round that the children spin. And as they spin, a device beneath the ground begins to turn and fresh, clean drinking water is pumped up. Great idea. Above them. Great idea. Great I idea. Know. I thought yeah. so, too. I thought so, too. So I but. did this like fabulous <laughs> yeah, story about them initially and then had done a follow-up story three years later and found that everything that could have gone wrong had gone wrong. And I felt personally and professionally responsible in part for the plight of the people that this project had affected. Um, why? why? Why is that? That's that... Well, because I had done a very favorable story first for public radio and then for public television about it. And I was told by the billionaire philanthropist, Steve and Jean Case, Steve Case, the co-founder of AOL, AOL yeah. they've become themselves, um, big philanthropists in Africa. And um, they told me, you know, that frontline piece you did um, is the first thing we show potential donors. And a year after my story aired on television, I was invited to the Clinton Global Initiative, where I was told that the play pump was going to be expanded across several African nations, and that millions and millions of dollars are going to go toward expanding the technology, which at the time I thought was a fantastic thing. And uh, I had been told that my television piece was used to raise funds and awareness for it. Um, but, you know, when I found out three years later and went back to Mozambique and met with women who were sitting in the sand without clean drinking water for many months because this play pump had been put in, um, I felt very badly about that. And it made me reflect very seriously on journalism's role in interrogating well-intentioned people and projects. So, so can I stop you there and, and just ask you to describe briefly sort of what went wrong with the play pump? Um, just about everything that you could imagine <laughs> from, you know, um, communities rejecting it to them not being maintained, um, to them, you know, they were supposed to be put 
in schools. They There was so much donor enthusiasm and money going toward the project that they started putting them into communities, uh, replacing what had been reliable sources of water by an old-fashioned hand pump. Those were taken out and, and play pumps were put down. And so like in my follow-up story, I meet with these women in Mozambique who, you know, the children go off to school every day, of course. And so the women were left to get water and the only way they could get water was by quote-unquote playing on this play pump which they found, of course, very undignified. Men would kind of walk by and laugh, like, why are these women playing on this thing? They should be working and not knowing that this was a device that was actually bringing them water. Um, and so there were just myriad um, things that went wrong. And, you know, the communities ultimately didn't want these things, especially not outside of schools. Um, so it was just, um, you know, and a lot of them weren't even working from the moment they were put in the ground. They just didn't deliver water. And and so then you you had this realization that the the reporting you did led to this you know or contributed at least to this this failure and you had what a a a, a desire and 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 a need to want to sort of correct the 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 wrong. Absolutely, you know, I, I just I just felt like as journalists, um, at least you know I founded it I found a tiny spark in two thousand eleven and 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 at that time and I still feel you know largely today. We don't do enough, a good enough job of interrogating seemingly well-intentioned projects, projects that, you know, purport to do good. And I think we need to do a better job of asking, well, so why are you qualified to do this? <laughs> Is this something that the community wants? What are your plans for long-term, you know, impact and sustainability? Um, what happened to all those aid dollars that went to Haiti after the earthquake or to Ebola? Um, you know, how did that money get spent? Um, who was helped? Who got missed? Why? You know, so uh, those are all the questions that interest me. And again, having spent five years in Africa, I don't do this work because I don't care. I do it because I care very much. And so my goal ultimately is to get people engaged in the space and to stay with it. I don't want to try to get people turned away from doing good. I simply want to figure out how to do it better. And I feel like your podcast, your reporting efforts, and, and are part of like a larger, more modern effort to kind of, I think, modernize how the public understands aid. Um, you know, we, we kicked off talking uh, about that a bit, but I do feel like there is a growing consciousness uh, that that's evolving um, around these kinds of, of issues that like a play pump sort of thing probably couldn't be replicated to the scale it was back then today. Or I don't know if you agree or disagree with that. Yeah. I mean, I think that might be true. Um, but I'll, uh, having said that, I would also express my concern about snarkiness, um, mm -hmm. which is something that I try never to be myself, um, that there can be a fair dose of sarcasm that goes into like, you know, the white savior industrial complex and, oh, another white do-gooder and like making fun and stuff like that. And yeah. I, I just think this work is too important to, to have that tone. Yeah. And I'm with you on that. Yeah. And I genuinely think that people are well-intentioned in the space. I've almost never met anybody who isn't well-intentioned. And I think we need to take that seriously. And I think we need to say, okay, you are well-intentioned and you want to do good, but let's just figure out how you can do it best. Um, and so I guess that's the only kind of pushback I'd give. I agree that there's better, more comprehensive, informative um, 
coverage of this area, but sometimes I get concerned about the tone. So any uh, upcoming episodes we can look out for? Anything else you're, you're focusing on in the future? <laughs> well, I'm hoping today to post a podcast about um, Silicon Valley philanthropists um, and the immense need in the area. There's a really interesting report that's come out highlighting um, the incredible wealth some 76,000 millionaires and billionaires in two counties in San and um, Silicon Valley, and yet um, immense needs. One third of the population is receiving some kind of private or public assistance. Um, and so, why is this? How can there be? And you know, these people are all very, libertarians. <laughs> well, no. I mean, in fact, I mean, there's incredible uh, generosity in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Philanthropists are giving away billions of dollars. But why can it be then that there's all these needs locally? So we're kind of delving into that mm-hmm. with uh, two women who who did a, a comprehensive very report cool. about this issue. Very cool. Very um, cool. Yeah. So, and I'm hoping a couple investigative pieces underway as well um, that you can look forward to. All so. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your work, for your podcast, and for taking the time to speak with me. Oh, Mark, thank you for taking an interest in my work, and I look forward to following yours. All right. Thank you all for listening. And I admit, I did not know the connection between Amy and the Play Pump. The Play Pump story is like a very famous story in global development about how good intentions are not enough to support a a, a real, vibrant, and sustainable global development intervention uh fascinating to to learn her interaction with that story all right thank you all for listening and we'll see you soon bye